0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is being brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, believers in good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com
1: slash podcast.
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network,
3: Hey, and welcome to The Food Scene. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell. Here today, well, well, let me preface, I, I usually don't dress up for radio, but because of you, because you are in our presence, I had to. This is Zach Posen. If you don't know who Zach Posen is, well, you're not watching Project Runway, you don't fly Delta, you're not in a Brooks Brothers suit. But the influence he's had on the design world is now going to be parallel to the influence he's going to have in the food world. Cooking with Zach, a book by Rodale, just came out today. This is this is launch day. Today is launch day. And Thank you for having yeah, me. Yeah, thanks for being here. What, what's so exciting is that you made a choice at a young age to not be a butcher.
4: Yes. <laughs> Different internship. <laughs>
3: yeah. But but what was that interest in being a butcher or being in that mode of work
4: that almost hooked you? Well, I had gotten over interest in musical theater. <laughs> <laughs> and... uh you know, I had to get a summer job and I wanted to learn anatomy, human, animal anatomy for draping clothing, but also a love of food. I wanted to work at Ottomanelle's. Yeah. I, I wanted to understand how the bone and muscular system worked. So you're like the Rocky of fashion in that sense, instead of boxing
3: big hanging pieces of meat in a warehouse. I wanted to
4: understand how the muscular system and bones and all of it connected and... You know, how how you can take the design of the human body and, and let it, uh, you know, speak for itself. That's fascinating. You know, I know you were raised Jewish from a Russian and Polish
3: background. Did you see those kind of cuts of meat at the table or was it walking by places no. like ellis It was really like walking
4: you? by places like ellis in New York. And, uh, you know, my dad is originally from St. Louis, Missouri. So, you know, the I would say the uh, most graphic element we'd have would be ribs, and ribs are very important to him, and they're in the book. Yeah. His, his his smoked barbecue ribs that he's perfected year after year, you know, he he would traditionally eat it with, you know, as a child with a white piece of bread underneath as they do in St. Louis, that soaks up all the good stuff.
3: And they love their burnt ends there. But, yes, you they know, do. But, there wasn't St. Louis barbecue in Soho in the 70s.
4: No. So what did your parents do?
3: What did your father do as a painter to, to sate himself, to feed himself? Well, you
4: know, he felt that a family that ate together stayed together. And, and when I was, uh, you know, a twinkle in their eyes, uh, my mom, you know, in her career changed paths and became a professional working woman, uh, went to law school, became a lawyer, became then a partner on Wall Street, and so she would come home from the office, and my dad would cook, and uh, unbeknownst to me until only a few years ago, when she said, "You know that I would go back to the office till the wee hours, you know, of you know late into you know late into the night, into the morning, back in the office after dinner," but growing up on Spring Street we had our, our 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 shopping was Little Italy and was Chinatown and uh we would supplement that by going to the green market or my mom, you know, to kind of connect with nature, we started roof gardening. And there was a whole roof community of different creative people and artists that lived in Soho. So that's where I started growing plants. And container plants on, on the roof and trading specimens and seeds, and it was a whole kind of ecosystem up there in Soho. I don't think I think now they're you know built at penthouses and different uh rooftops in Soho, but you know it was a, it was a transitional time in the neighborhood. So
3: it's amazing before the original
4: Dean and DeLuca exactly, was there, yeah, and the original Balducci's is where Citadella is now, but those were like a luxury, you know, big fancy experience for me as a child to go to.
3: But, I mean, you were ingrained in this food culture in so many ways, it seems, and able to differentiate Chinese culture versus Italian Absolutely. culture versus, you know, this farm-to-table movement, which I was is a burgeoning. picky kid. Yeah.
4: <laughs> I mean, I really, I, I grew up uh, on, I, I I would eat noodle soup, seaweed, tofu, uh, you know, and then... Salty licorice because I had a Norwegian babysitter, <laughs> and kind of Norwegian fare, marzipan pigs, you know. But it was definitely food was ha- was was kind of the window into different cultural foods for me. Uh, Japanese food for special holidays, birthdays, we would go to a place off University, a place called Japanica that's still there, and that that was my introduction into Japanese culture, which became very influential.
3: But I love at a at a young age, but 16, 18, that there was an internship with Nicole Miller that yeah. was offered to you. And it was at that point where there was the realization that everybody eats, but not everybody wears hot couture. And <laughs> so why did you go to uh, a more myopic field? Um, was it a challenge for you seeing design as something a little more narrow or was it a challenge for you uh, being in a field that you didn't quite understand I, yet? I had
4: no idea about the field of fashion, really. I understood, you know, I understood the role of fashion within costume and history. And I think my love of fashion first came from theater and uh, costuming, and then how clothing can be. I mean, I grew up, it was the 80s in New York, so people were much more expressive in the way they dressed. And this idea of self-creation is a really big part of my being, but of New York. And uh, dress is a sense of expression of the theater of life. And, uh, you know, that evolved. And it was, you know, I started that internship and it was the first time I worked on a fashion show and cast models and was able to you know, the sewers would make sketches that I was making. I was sketching. She was an incredible mentor in a first position in fashion. And, you know, that led to many other internships uh, at the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum, at a company, Toka. Uh, I worked on, uh, you know, different aspects of their line. And, you know, it, it evolved. But I was always cooking. I was always home cooking. I love the, the – I love process. And I love the creative process, and I'm tactile. And I love sensory experiences and the theater of bringing people together for food. And I think horticulture, uh, nature is something really important. I mean, the greatest luxury brand in the world, uh, you know, not even a, a brand, the deity that is Mother Nature. I mean, something to respect. Yeah,
3: And, and you know, in cooking, sometimes we're removed from that agricultural process and forget how agrarian, uh, um, going out to eat really is because it does all hopefully come Coach from cuisine. the ground. Yeah. Yes. But you and I, uh, uh, have a similar reference in what was it called? The, the discovery channel show, great chefs. Oh yes. I was fascinated Huge. by it. This is my middle school life. And, and I would come home or stay home sick and watch this show. Um, and I felt transported because you got to kind of experience the world through cuisine. But what always bummed me out is how standardized the costuming was. You know, a chef's coat or a, a toque, you know, obviously is white for a reason. So if they know they right. you know, get dirty, they can change it. But you see such colorful plates. Uh, were you annoyed at any point of your fashion career seeing chefs in the same old whites over and over again?
4: Um, no. No. I'm not, because, uh, you know, listen, there's great adaptations that one can have on the apron, the white thing, but there's the utilitarian side to it. So when you go into, you know, the great, uh, you know, ateliers in France, for example, they're in, you know, a white coat. It's just, uh, you know, I I, I don't, I like uniforms. I, I, I think, you know, especially if there's a purpose to them. Uh, You know, now over the years, I've had the opportunity to uh, work on different uniforms. I made a great uniform, a custom uniform, for one of my oldest friends who I've had great food experiences with over the years, Chef Nina Clemente. Uh, And uh, I made her a chambray with an orange piping on it. And, uh, you know, this was like color story of like the New York Knicks And, you know, some kind of Jamaican flair with this, like, you know, kind of coral color in there. And that just reminded me of my whole life with her. Um, But Great Chefs. I mean, that was a huge show for me. I would watch it methodically. And, uh, you know, just I would I remember watching the show and then trying on the weekends to kind of interpret the pieces. I mean, between that and New York Times food section growing up. That I would get, you know, at while my dad would finish off th- the crossword, which he still does every single day, uh, you know, were really instrumental. Uh, you know, watching people's process in hand, I don't even remember what they were wearing. <laughs> I really don't. I just remember their voiceovers, yeah. the weird buzz of the kitchens that would come on, kind of the simplicity of the show and the complexity of the ditch- dishes. I remember... I have a very strong memory of a rainbow multicolored, like, coulee that was made and swirled. Uh, I remember going to the country and creating a mousse cake, like a pear mousse cake afterwards, and then making a white chocolate, trying to attempt to make a white chocolate dome that would sit over the cake. I must have been like 15 at the time, dipping it in a balloon and then having to cool it. I remember lots of popping balloons and lots of... <laughs> Lots of mess. I mean, I will say I'm not... And the reason I say I'm good with this a white jacket is I'm a messy creator. <laughs> in my office when I drape, I mean, it, it, you know, it. My I have friends who say, you know, when I was... I lived in the UK and went to design school there that my room, which was my workroom, you know, was, was verging on Francis Bacon level of, uh, of mess, of creative process. <laughs> yeah. Now I have to try to clean... And it's, it's a good, you know, but, you know, good good work, good creativity in the invention stage, especially, you know, takes, uh, takes a little mess.
3: Well, you know, the show that you're on, Project Runway, is a little different than Great Chefs in that people do recognize what you and the contestants are wearing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the point of the show. But I'm more interested in this meal that you created for uh, the host, Heidi Klum. Yes. And... In your book, you you have this concept, or maybe you did actually serve her this meal, of s- spring watercress soup, herb-roasted mm-hmm. chicken over vegetables with brown butter gravy, mizuna and avocado salad with creamy cashew, uh, ginger dressing, and minty melon ice. Now,
4: can you read a person and know what they want to eat just like? No. Can you
3: read a person? I mean, you can yeah.
4: interpret. You can guesstimate. Yeah. You can be try to be telepathic, but... None of this works with with Heidi. Um, Heidi is very smart. Heidi made it very simple. After a few questions, uh, it becomes very exact. She printed out her menu from my Instagram posts (laughs) and and told me what she wanted to eat. So, I mean, that was very useful and made it easy. And I was able to have the uh, sorbet done, you know, that I had had for like, you know, I don't know a few days, the chicken lasted because she was late. She was filming at Radio City uh, at the time. And, and so that, you know, the chicken was fine. Like, you can just turn down a chicken and even slow roast it, which is a good method, too. And, and the rest of it, you know, soup, watercress soup, I grow my own watercress. It's natural. I haven't planted a seed. But, you know, now at this time of year, it's coming all back up and beautiful, very fresh clean streams in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. We have freshwater crawfish and freshwater clams. Really? In 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 the pond there, which you know was a man-made pond in the 50s, but having that means the water quality is real good. Well, see, I love that you're
3: talking about seasonality because the book itself is also broken up in those seasonal moments. Those are fashion tie Yeah.
4: <laughs> we had to do the fashion yeah, yeah. seasons. But I, Which I, are so antiquated today in in the fashion industry because it's like people eat what they want when they want. And now in fashion, people buy what they want when they want it, and this whole like waiting seasonality quality of fashion is gone. And in some ways, in food, it's come back.
3: See, I buy my bathing suits in the winter, and I thought I was smart. And you can tell me whether not I am uh, um, after the economically. Spring. Well, fashion economically, I thought all of it. Yeah. you can
4: get whatever you want anytime. Ingredients now, anytime. I mean, something's in season. But, uh, you know, we have to take care of our planet too. We're going to take a quick break on that note, and we'll be right back with Zach
3: Posen, Cooking with Zach. Bob Moore is the founder of Bob's Red Mill, the top quality supplier of grains, flours, and general nutritional goodness from Oregon. He's talking to us about their signature millstones, a very specific way of making whole grain flour.
1: So what's the secret, Bob? Follow me to the mill room. Well, these are just like the millstones that the Romans used to grind their grains. In fact, these stones came from the same quarry near Paris, France where the Romans got their stones. The company that makes our millstones pulls their quartz from the same quarry and they make mills for us that are just wonderful. Bob explains how the millstones grind much slower and at cooler temperatures
3: than modern steel rollers. The process keeps the grains cool, preserving the flavor
1: and nutrition. Look at what they produce. I love how they keep things simple and just right. All the nutrition is there, just like nature intended. After
3: almost 40 years in the milling business, they're serving up over 400 organic, gluten-free, and whole grain foods right here from the mill in Oregon, sending them off to destinations around the world.
1: We think we can make a difference by sticking to the traditional way of stone milling. And so, that's what we're doing.
3: To learn more about Bob's Red Mill and their mission to bring good food for all, visit bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Hey, and welcome back to The Food Scene on Radio network.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here again with Zach Posen of his new cookbook, Cooking with Zach.
4: Out today
3: out today it's so great to have a show on tuesdays because that's release day for oh, books it is? okay so i get this to is new to me them. yeah <laughs> so i get to hook them right before it, you're about to get into the weeds when it comes to tour i'm sure um, i'm and, excited yeah i love touring do.
4: but show on the road
3: let's let's go on the road a little bit okay. um, because what's awesome about your book is all the outside and cultural influences other than New York yeah and a favorite for mine is Japan yes and why I mean you've talked about Japanese being a, a holiday or birthday thing, but what <laughs> other design and food aspects have you taken from that
4: what is there not to take I, it's so absurd it's absurd I mean Japanese culture and I, I don't ever really like to generalize in this way you know they have such uh a huge respect to food culture and to ingredients, uh, starting from, you know, obviously the sea, uh, rice culture, um, you know, everything, vegetables, fruit. I mean, they kind of take everything and make it better. They perfect. They treat, I mean, maybe it it's Shinto in their, you know, beliefs in some way. I mean, a level of respect for, you know, that, that we believe that Nature and plants and and objects actually have a soul and a meaning, but it, it it's it's outstanding on uh, on a design front. Uh, you know there are multiple influences that came to be to form Japan. Uh, obviously, the influence um, of of Buddhism into into their culture. Um, you know it, it's deep. Besides that, it's geographically a fascinating place because you kind of have you know, and I don't think people always realize this, but you go from the tropics, you know, to to in Hokkaido in pretty north, you know, northern wild country and, you know, pretty much, you know, a a skip to Russia from there. Uh, And, you know, anyhow, Japan rocks my world. (laughs) Uh, You know, their traditions are deep. Obviously, uh, you know, their their deep uh, obsession... Because it is an obsession with umami, and flavors are, are pretty spectacular. I don't, you know, I love seaweed. I love making my dashi. It's a great, you know, alternative to chicken stock. That's for sure.
3: And and I find it so embedded in in fall and winter, which we are pseudo in now. Other than the hot and humid day we have uh, in starting, Brooklyn, it's starting. But you pay such respect just like Japanese culture does to their dishes and you refine them in your own Zach Posey kind of way. Uh, Simple things like ramen with lime and lemongrass, dashi glazed lotus root and winter vegetables, miso roasted squash, which I found out about last year Okay. Um, a little bit of akka, red miso and squash. It's goes great. Well yeah, red
4: miso has like an earthy, deep flavor to it. But that,
3: what is it about umami that that screams fall and winter, screams the, the winter months for
4: you? Um, well, I think that it, that's a great question. I think that it has, well, it creates um, kind of, a chemical. Your, you know, your. Let's get weird here. Your <laughs> saliva gets going. Yeah. Your senses. Uh. You know, it's that sweet, that sour, that that incredible. Um. You know, nuanced flavor that that is. You know. Similar to 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 a sweet or a salty thing, but it, it but it's not. It, it is the smokiness. Of of obviously the kombu seaweed, which has the, the saltiness and the smokiness, uh, you know from the bonito shavings, uh, you know if you want to make it richer, I mean the uh, you know interesting pungent uh, you know woodiness of uh, the shiitake mushrooms, dried or fresh nice to score it in a pretty way so it opens up in a nice way i, I knew you'd add the visual aspect in somewhere somewhere <laughs> there you know it, it's 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 you know it's also nutritious it's highly nutritious and it, it it's it, it is the basis for japanese food cold jellied miso soup you know you name
3: it and it's comforting too things like japanese curry uh, I mean, your ponzu bus- Brussels sprouts yeah. sound delectable, but I think there's something in comfort where we reach for hoodies during the fall. But you don't want to just wear a hoodie out. I mean, some people do. Right. Uh, you want to wear something that's comfortable, but at the same time, expresses you in this creative way. Cashmere Yeah, hoodie. that's the way to go. So Japanese is the
4: cashmere of cuisine, <laughs> for sure. The, beyond cashmere, I mean, you know, it's it's there's just nothing like it. Um, I'm in awe of it every, you know, I really the way that they have perfected everything. I like watching how they grow grapes. Uh, you know, it, it, you've never, it, it, it's really, you know, control. There's a balance between the wild and the control that I'm just drawn to in a major way. You know, it, it's, it's neurotic, obsessive, perfectionist, and then also accepting the beauty of unperfection and of the natural.
3: Then what is it about Paris, aside from Fashion Week? What is it about huh. the butter and cream of scrambled mm. eggs there, the overzealousness of Parisian cuisine that is almost antithetical to Japanese?
4: Right, and 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 so well appreciated by each other's culture. Uh, I think, you know, they perfected, uh, you know, and, and we can't talk about France as a whole thing, or Parisian cuisine, there's so many different regional Cuisines in in France. But, uh, you know, the richness, the the baking, the butter. I mean, what is not to love about great puff pastry and a croissant or a pan au chocolat? I mean, it's the best. And it's the form of those things, too. I mean, I'm assuming. There's a formalism. Yeah. There's a formalism. And I think that kind of control and precision is connecting to Japanese. I think that obviously, you know, when you get into, uh, you know, real traditional French foods, and we start talking terrines, that's a little bit a little bit farther removed, although I'm sure they're, you know, it's all about, both cultures have a deep history of preservation of food, and that's just the history of food, is, you know, figuring out, pickling, uh, you know, pâtés, preserving, you know, the transformation. I would say that French are the magicians of food.
3: And are these kind of culinary concepts of what French
4: and Japanese cuisine do, do they, are they parallel to that in fashion? Are they parallel to that in fashion? Absolutely. I mean, we have to remember that in the history of France, you know, everybody was brought together to kind of put together their luxury, their specialty as, as commerce, as, as a way of commerce. And then that idea of the best button maker or the greatest steel maker and steelwork or porcelain maker or tapestry maker was marketed to the to the whole world you know and to the new emerging wealths in different markets and different dynasties and and that's part of you know how food and different influences exchanged and traded through through the history of civilization
3: and i think you convey that so well in the book and I just want to say two other things. You know, th- there's marketing, and then there's uh, uh, there's a way of expressing something. Uh, th- this packaging that is just so sweet and endearing that you've done in this book, where there's a story of a mixed berry galette, and it, it's for Lena Dunham. I believe right. was at a party, and you had dropped your pie plate. She and, was coming to the house and brunch. You, yeah, and you repackaged that idea as a galette because you didn't have a pie plate to serve yeah, it. Yeah, necessity. And I think it's so smart that this book has that creation of invention out of necessity so often in this way that doesn't feel prepackaged. It feels again. Like- I mean,
4: I go home, I look what's in my fridge, and I normally just will make do. And I think, you know, a that is economical, ecological, uh, and just real. I mean, I think, uh, you know, it's it's great to have a full stocked, perfect fridge, but I mean, I'm the one doing, you know, I'm putting the dishes in the dishwasher at the end of the day. I'm, you know, it, it's, there's no sous chef preparing these meals. It, it's me. So I think that kind of, uh, yeah, that kind of versatility, yeah, necessity is the greatest kind of uh, spark for invention.
3: And as much of this being a book about Zach the fashionista, I really think this is truly a book about Zach the Baker. This Zach is about baker, Zach the Baker, and Zach the Cook. So yeah, thank you, thank you for putting that foot forwards, and I can't wait to see the ripples you wave through the culinary. That's exciting. As well. This
4: is you know a great way to present uh, your table, bringing a family together. This is about a book that I hope you know if you have young children that they open up and get enticed by the visuals. Um, this is a book about trying to promote people to get in touch with their creativity because I think creativity is essential. Thank
3: you so much again for being on, and please go run out, buy the book today, Cooking with Zach, Anywhere Books Are Sold, and through Rodale Books as well. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A huge thank you to Bob's Red Mill for sponsoring Music by Cookies and David Tatashore Engineering.